So we gather today to celebrate the baptism of our Lord. Which to me raises the question, why was Jesus baptized? I mean, really, why was it necessary for Jesus to be baptized? In all the Gospels, it's made clear that John the Baptist is on a mission. The mission of baptism of the people of Israel for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But, but wait, hang on a minute. Jesus has no sin. That's what we were told. That's what we believe. So what's he to repent from? Now Luke, more than any other gospel, suggests that Jesus is baptized so he can join with us fully and completely in our humanness. Jesus recognizes the full implication of the incarnation, of God becoming man. It's complete solidarity with us as humans. And some suggest there's also an acknowledgement that Jesus, again, God made man, knew that to succeed in his mission, he would have to participate in an essentially tragic and sinful system, rife with oppression and misdeeds between fellow men and women. He couldn't somehow ride above the sinful system, the system that led to his very crucifixion. He had to go in. And in fact, Jesus' baptism was him going all in, in this humanness. All four of the Gospels have a similar shape in terms of this story. They include John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is always somehow subjugated to Jesus. You know, not fit to tie his sandals and so on, which we just heard. All the, all the Gospels have, as Jesus is baptized, a dove, the Holy Spirit, descend down from heaven and land on Jesus. And all, are, all the Gospels have a voice proclaimed from heaven, some variation of, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. In Matthew, this voice is heard by the surrounding crowd. In Luke, Jesus alone seems to hear it. So there's a lot of agreement about the overall shape and details of the story in the Gospels. But in Luke, there are a couple of changes. Changes that I think underscore even more Jesus' mission in baptism of connecting to us, to our humanness. Only in Luke is Jesus baptized along with a group of other believers. It's not just about him. I imagine him standing in line waiting patiently as John submerges the others and they come back up. He might join in a crowd-led hooray as each one of them emerged from the deep, wiping water from their face. This ceremony is not for Jesus alone. He's part of the rest of humanity. Jesus also does something in Luke that he doesn't do anywhere else in the Gospels. As soon as he's baptized, he prays. And the dove descends and the voice rings out while Jesus is in prayer. I think in this small act, Jesus shows how we respond to our baptism. That we follow it with our prayers. Finally, in all the Gospels, Jesus' baptism is quickly followed by his temptations in the desert. It's a reminder that even following the cleansing waters of baptism, Jesus and us have to navigate the treacherous terrain of sin and temptation. It doesn't end with the baptism. So, a second question. What happens to us in baptism? What's going on? In our catechism, which is what we believe that's in the back of our Book of Common Prayer, the first thing that's said in baptism is that we're adopted by God as His children and made members of Christ's body. We're adopted by God as His children. So in a very real way, 
In our baptism, we too are called beloved by God, in whom he's well pleased. While it may look like we're doing something, being showered with water or submerged or anointed with oil, that's all appearance. The real work is God's, and he's adopting us as children and calling us beloved. We then repent like the Israelites. We turn away from our sinful lives and ask for forgiveness of our sins. Put another way, in the chaos of water, in the chaos of the deep, in baptism we die with Christ and God quickly finds us and raises us up to a new life and God makes us his children and calls us beloved. The other readings on this feast day are filled with actions of sanctification of God's people by fire and water. Lots of water. The psalmist sings of the Lord over the waters, the mighty waters. The same Lord who sits enthroned over the flood of all things. The flood. In return, we and all creation are called to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. And in Isaiah, God assures us when we, that when we pass through the waters, he will be with us. The same for the fire. We will walk through the flames and not be burned. They will not consume us. This Isaiah reading stands out for me as one of the most reassuring, the most comforting expressions of what a life as the adopted child of God is to be. The God who created us, who formed us, insists that we do not fear, for he has redeemed us. We do not fear, for he has redeemed us. Just as in our adoption and baptism, he calls us by name, he calls us beloved, and reassures us, you are mine. Because you are a precious in my sight, he tells us, and honored, and I love you. He will do great things for us. We are not to fear. We are not to fear. In dark times, like Judea and exile in Babylon, that Isaiah writes about, we're in a world today where we fear the unknown, we fear the other, we fear the future, where we build walls and prisons out of fear, where fear is an industry that fuels what we read and see and talk about. God is telling us with no reservation, do not fear, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, called you beloved, and you are mine. With all this, what do we have to fear? Nothing. We've got God on our side. But it doesn't mean we don't have work to do. In a few moments, we'll all renew our baptismal vows on this day of celebration of the baptism of our, of our Lord. We'll open with an affirmation of our beliefs, like we do when we recite the Nicene Creed, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But then, we'll be asked to make some promises. Just as Jesus had to face desert temptations, we have work to do to stay in right relationship to God and right relationship to each other, to deserve to be called beloved. We will commit to teaching and fellowship, to worship like this and prayer, like Jesus prayed after his baptism in Luke. We'll promise to keep fighting evil in all its forms and to repent, to turn back to God when we fail, like the Israelites in the desert. We'll vow to keep proclaiming the good news of God in Christ. And then it gets tough. We'll commit to serving Christ in all persons. Christ in all persons. You've got to be honest, this one is probably the toughest. 
We have to see the Christ in our enemy, in those we disagree with. And I know this is going to be particularly hard for many of you, but we have to see Christ in our elected officials, even our president, especially our president. This may, be, this may not be so tough for many of you, but for some, and you know who you are, and I read Facebook, I see it, <laughs> you've got to make this happen. Finally, we promise to strive for justice and peace among all people. To make St. Peter's, to make Conway, to make the world a safe place, a sanctuary, where those who have been rejected or have been hurt or survived injustice, who are sad, those who aren't at peace, have a place they can go to, can feel safe. We commit to strive on their behalf, not for our own doing, not for our own good, but for the good of the world. Now these promises we're going to make are daunting. And we'll be tempted to avoid some of them, especially the really tough ones. And we'll fail. And then we'll be forgiven. And then we'll fail again. And then we'll be forgiven. But when you think about it, the upside is so great. The reward for this work is the precious sound that we'll hear descending from the heavens. When we hear God say, you are my son, you are my daughter, the beloved, with you, I am well pleased. Amen.